what's happening in the canine industry. For all the latest news, views and expert opinions, stay right here for the canine paradigm. You'll hear from industry leaders, experts, doyens of the industry, learned colleagues, movers and shakers, and the odd Randy guest. Get the latest insights and expert advice from both here and abroad from the people in the know. Now, here are your hosts, Glenn Cook and Pat Stewart. And I'm Lofty Fulton, and I'm out of here. Hey folks, if you like listening to us, then you're going to love Chad Mackin and Jay Jack, who are coming to Australia to do their Dog Training Conversations tour of Australia. They're going to be in Australia for May, first three weekends in May, hitting Sydney, then Brisbane, then Melbourne. If you want to buy tickets to that, please head over to my website, mskennels.com, hit the Seminars tab, and follow the Bouncing Ball to buy your tickets there. Thank you. Welcome back to another fun-filled episode of the Canine Paradigm. My name is Glenn Cook. I'm your host today, joined in studio as always with my co-host, Pat Stewart. Hello. Today's topic, we're going to talk about failure in training. Failure. I think this topic came from one of our listeners. Mm -hmm. I guess the premise is to have a little bit of a background on it is what happens when you see that somebody else has been involved in a training program with a dog and perhaps the dog was put to sleep. You could have or somebody could have given that dog another opportunity to learn, which I have to say has been the case many, many times Mm -hmm. throughout my career where I've actually seen dogs prior to being put to sleep and colleagues have seen dogs that they have able to perform some magical uh, turnaround with the dog. Well, not magical, but they've been able to turn the dog around from the state that it was currently in, which was currently displeasing their owner, into a dog that they could enjoy. Mm Mm-hmm. And we can also talk about your own failures as well. So wherever you've come up against something, it's really a failure of being able to train the dog. It's usually a failure of being able to train the person to train the dog and pushing them to the point where they give up, which I can speak about a little bit as well. Yeah, I think one of the things that we really need to discuss in this point is where ego gets a little bit in the way. Mm. In future conversations, we are going to have a bit of a chat about the whole premise on ego and some of the egos in this industry. Mm. Uh, I think that's a topic that needs to be discussed. However, it has been one of the catalysts that have prevented trainers from referring dogs on when they should have and they could have. They Instead of saying, you know what, I'm probably not the best person to train this dog. There have been situations, and especially when I learned more about, there's one premises that I think as a human being that you have to consider in many situations, and it's a good one, often thought about, but not always practiced on my behalf, is that it's not always about you. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. It's kind of like one of those Zen quotes where when you sort of come to the end of your life and you become wise, not that I'm at the end of my life, but when you wisen up a little bit, you start to realize that it's not all about you. And in training, often new trainers or trainers that have been isolated from quite a lot of things, they forget that premises that it's not always about them. And they start to think, if I can't train this dog, nobody can train this dog. Yeah. And they push and sell that point onto their clients as well, which is quite disheartening because their clients are conditioned themselves to believe if I go elsewhere, it's almost like a um, Stockholm syndrome. Mm. where they're so 
encapsulated with their trainer and they've, they've almost held them hostage over it, that they start to believe and sympathize with their cause and they support them unfoundly without any research in, or without going and having a look on the market and seeing what else is out there. There's a lot of tribalism in dog training. Oh, perfect word for it. Tribalism in how you identify as a trainer. Mm. So then you've got a couple of groups there, right? So what you'd say who get labeled balanced and then you're force free. So there's two different tribes. Yep. And then even within them, there's so many subcategories of say in the balance, you know, this is how I do things. This is how I do things. This is the only tool I use. I train this type. And is it the weird thing that they often clash with each other? But the worst thing is, is they clash with themselves. Yeah. That's just like. Absolutely. And the problem, certainly you see it in that. So the average person has a problem with their dog, right? And they call it a trainer. They might look online and they see some flashy videos and and usually that trainer will then have a moderately trained Malinois that can do a bunch of things or shepherd or whatever. Mm. A dog built to be trained, specifically genetically engineered to want to work for something. So they're not that hard to train. And sometimes what they do, and I'm not trying to shit can anyone in particular or any groups of people or anything like that, but sometimes what they do is they swap out four dogs before they actually get that dog. Oh, yeah, of course. Um, So Wait, before we go ahead on that. I don't have any problem with that. And I if you're trying to achieve something, that's right. I don't have a problem with that. That's right. Like if you if you have if you have said I want to compete at high level sports, so you can't race F one with a mini minor. That's right. You can't do it. And you have to come to the realization that the car that I've got is not built for the track. It's dangerous. It will never reach the speeds. I will never, ever, I'll never be sponsored. I'll never achieve anything. I won't win. I won't even rate. You know, I'll be laughed out of this if I try and compete at this level. So if you've gone off to a breeder and you've selected a dog and you've realized this isn't the dog for the sport that I wanted and you've ethically rehomed that dog and you've done all the right things, which I know tons of people have done, I have no problem with you. Yeah. So what I do have a problem with is when you are masquerading behind that and pretending that you've just stumbled upon it and all of a sudden that you're this wizard in training and it's so easy and any dog can achieve it and it's it's a massive sales pitch based on a bullshit foundation. Yeah, and it's a big problem as well when you aren't competing. When your dog's job is just to look good for you, Mm. that's when it irks me. Yeah. I have no problem with people moving a dog on for exactly as you've said, this dog, I want to compete in X sport. This dog is not going to enjoy X sport, move it on, Y. This is either not going to enjoy, be good at, whatever. Yeah. And that happens even, you know, as we've discussed in the breeding episodes, like there's no there's no telling what's really going to happen. It could go either way, all good intentions. It could still come unstuck. I have no problem with people moving a dog on like that. I've seen people just jumping in on that argument before and saying, oh, you know, this is very unethical and you shouldn't be doing this because a dog is for life. Well, a dog is also for a better life too. So if it's yeah. going to have a better suited life with somebody else, and as I say, if the if the transfer is ethical and it's agreeable by all parties and the dog is enjoying itself and living a more fulfilled life in a better situation, what is the problem? Yeah. You know, that that's a that's an interesting topic alone in that a lot of say dog industry people like you and I, you dogs are really a little bit fluid in their ownership, right? They can Mm. come and go. And I've seen dogs that are in a great situation, really love it, happy family, well-trained, doing really well. And for whatever reason, the dog can't stay there or the people move it on, whatever. And it goes to another place and it's just as happy, just as fulfilled. Everything is going as well. So a lot of people, especially for people who have never given up a dog or moved a dog or sold a dog or whatever, 
can get really upset by that idea that a dog can be. Yeah, but dogs are happy to go where the gravy is. That's right. Yeah. yeah. And look, the same thing could be said for children too. Just because you're biological parents doesn't mean you're best parents for those children. Yeah. Sometimes children have been taken out of homes because the, the parents are a, a bunch of sh- Yeah, but even when things are good, and, and to, to dogs especially, I mean, like my neighbours kind of freak out that like dogs come and go. Like, yep. And they're like, oh, what happened to that one? Oh, I sold him. It's gone. I and, ate him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but they're, they're like, oh, don't you get attached? And I'm like, yeah, I like the dog, but he, I raised him for a purpose and now he's gone to do the purpose. Yep. So that's just a, I mean, that's another, that's another topic. But It is. And, uh, and people have asked me that about puppies before when they've come to buy puppies off me. They said, is this a hard day for you? And I said, it's bittersweet. Mm. It's one of those days where I know, you know, I'm going to miss the pup for sure because we've got to know the identity and the personality of the pup. Mm. But knowing that it's going to go into a lifelong house with people that's going to love it, that's the sweet side of it. Yeah. And in rehoming dogs sometimes that aren't suitable in the environment that they're in, I mean, we've had working dogs before where once the work is finished, we found homes for them. Yeah. You know, there's a friend of mine in Melbourne who's got a lab called Sonic. She was my one of my detection dogs mm-hmm. when we used to do all the bomb detection work. And she's very old now. She's towards the final stages of her life. And I merely had to take her to the vets the other day to get a check. She had a seizure and everything like that, but she is a, like a, a great grandma aging dogs. And she has had the most wonderful life yeah. that you could ever ask. And she was a boisterous, high level working detection dog that's lived out the rest of her life. So rather than her living the rest of her days in a kennel and possibly having a shortened lifespan and mm-hmm. so forth, she's gone into a family home where she had another dog as a companion, children, a great lifestyle, and she's living happily ever after. There's nothing wrong with that in that situation. Yeah. In my circumstances, the puppies coming through my hands is I like raising monsters. I have no use for them. Mm. So I'd rather I enjoy the process of doing it. And then if I can put them into someone who does need that, like police military example, it's better for everyone involved. Absolutely. Uh, It's a great working life. The dog is going to the situation it was designed for. Yeah, exactly. And thrives in. So we've spoken about that for a few minutes so that you can understand that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about when someone says, I want a dog that's going to make me look good as a trainer and this dog is not fulfilling that. When in reality, it gives you an opportunity to do it even better. Mm. If you can show that this dog is not naturally inclined to whatever it is you want to do and you can bring it around to the idea of it, safely, ethically, and and still have a good time along the way, then that is a better trainer than someone that's just getting rid of that one, get in another one, get rid of that one, get another one. Okay, this one makes me look good. This is the one I start making videos with. I totally concur. And it's I often refer to conversations that I have with NDTF students because a lot of these conversations I have with many, many students, that's one of the things that we do regularly talk about is what I'm more interested in and the person who I'll pay more attention to is a person that can train the untrainable dog. Yeah. A person who can take a dog that everybody else is saying is no good and it can't be trained and they can do something with that. Now, there's a guy, um, Lewis. You've seen a couple of videos that Lewis has put online. He lives up in oh, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Townsville or somewhere yeah. like that. Yeah. Lewis is like he's doing things with his, with little, his little chihuahua, his little chihuahua and that. stuff like that. Now, he's doing little IPO movements with his dog. and, yeah. and But just for, it, for fun. it's just for fun. Mm. You know, he's not trying to say he's going to compete in IPO. It's just for fun. But these are dogs that you usually look at and go, oh, these dogs can't be trained in this type of things. Mm. Now, when I watch people training dogs like that, and when I've seen students do things where you think, oh, this looks too hard and it's probably unobtainable and they go out and do it, I'm very intrigued. Yeah. And that's often where I'll say to somebody, what did you do? 
and going back on that point too, I've often heard Bart saying the same sort of thing where he's seen a student do something mm. and many people around the world have considered Bart like the grandfather of amazing training standards. Yet in a lot of the schooling I've done with Bart, he said, I've seen a student do something and I thought, hang on, that shouldn't be able to work. Yeah. What did you do to do that? And then you'll go over. See, that's when you roll swap. Yeah. And instead of having this unrealistic, egotistic attitude where you just say, no, 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 I'm the teacher all the time, what you've got to realise is that role is constantly swapping yeah. between teacher and student. And when somebody can show you, and your students can show you right there and then, they can do something which you may never have considered. They can mm-hmm. say something or they can recite some sort of research that you've never heard, that yeah. you've never had access to. And when you do hear it and you think to yourself, I've never heard that before. Well, and there could be a couple of reasons for that, right? It could be highly specialized area that they do all the time. So in mm. that case, you're talking about, but like he talks about that with tracking and I can't remember the guy, the German guy's name that sort of showed him where he- Helmet Razor, was it? No, nah, it's someone else. I can't remember. But basically he- was like, whoa, this is You're totally on the phone to him every day. Heck, you're not. <laughs> and I mean literally every day. Not every day. Um, every second day. But so it could be highly specialised area mm. or it could be outside the box thinking, right? Like yep. so you and I can constrained by the framework under which we have seen and trained dogs and it's, it's difficult, both very open to looking at new things, but it's difficult to see it sometimes because you, you're looking at the world through the lens that you do. But when someone is new to an area altogether – even no matter how open-minded you try to remain, you can't be as open-minded as them because there there is no scars, there is no frame of yeah, reference. Yeah, that's a very good point. And so, I guess you see that sort of same thing when you were in the army as well. Oh, 100%. That, mm. That's exactly sort of where I drew that from and mm. said you get people who are exactly those two things, highly specialised in an area to the detriment of all others where they're fucking retarded at everything else they do, but that one thing, they're the guy and no one else even tries to challenge them and they become then like a subject matter expert and as I say, that's usually to the detriment of all other skills. They've mm. got one particular skill they focus on so heavily that, that that's all they're good for. There have um, been great mysteries all throughout life where people have pondered and painstakingly sat there day in, day out, trying to rudimentarily work their way through an issue. And somebody's walked in and gone, oh, if you yeah. just did this. You this didn't carry way. the one. That's right. And they, <laughs> you know, and they look at it and go, how the hell did you do that? Yeah. Well, it's because they're not agonizing over it in the same way they're looking yeah. like you said they're looking at it with fresh eyes yeah so they've come in with a different perspective and they've thought well to me it was obvious yeah but for you who are used to doing it in a certain framework yeah no matter different. how no matter how neutral you try to keep yourself and open-minded trying to keep yourself that's actually impossible you can't be neutral you're you're scarred by your previous experiences yep. so when someone has no previous experiences they are able to be really neutral and look at something and weigh up the balance of possibilities. And there's another way of looking at that too. Another consideration is the fact that you might have developed a standard that has worked very well for you for a period of time with a certain criteria of dog. Mm. So for you, for your work, for your platform, whatever you're doing, it works well, but you'll get those anomaly dogs that will come along every now and then, which I think are good because they challenge you. If you don't see them as a challenge, that's when it's a problem. If you're just looking at it as if to say, this doesn't fall in my easy category of cashing in, then what type of trainer are you? You have to ask yourself that question because you've failed to, when we're talking about failure, you failed to evolve at that point. Yeah. So we've digressed, but we brought it back around to that idea that there's plenty of people who, if the dog doesn't fit what they're preaching, if it doesn't fit the style of training they're doing, Mm. it can't be trained. And we see that easy distinction to draw in that as we say, oh, well, balanced trainers say one thing and force-free trainers will say another. And, and it is often the case that you might get someone say, well, 
this dog can't be fixed. And then another guy fixes that exact same issue a hundred times a day. Mm. So you get that in those two camps, but even then within the camps, you get people, it's divides and divides and divides and breaks down even more into smaller groups where people, I only, you know, I train with this modality. I train in high drive luring and U shape. And if, it, if I can't fix the problem in this high drive luring or, or teach the behavior in this, this luring technique, mm. then it can't be done. So there was an old belief when I started off in detection work is that in order to reward a dog, it had to be with a tug. Yeah, right. And people would say, look, don't do food. Food is not good. You know, it has to be with toys. It has to be with tugs. However, there are, and people have got their reasons why they believe that. They and there's it. still a lot of that around. There still is a lot of that around. Yet drive is drive. Ambition to get to your reward, the primary yeah. reinforcer, that's the point that people are missing in some of these things. Um, I know I'm talking about a specific technique, but that was one of the things that I didn't, I was, too young at the time and too naive to question that because I thought I don't want to question it because then my peers are going to think that I'm just being a smart ass and being arrogant. Mm -hmm. But at one point in time, I did start to think about it because I started to see people who were saying, no, no, I only train in food. No, no, I only train with tugs. And I thought to myself, well, what is it? Is it tugs or is it toys? Mm. But then when you start to mature in your own understanding of it, you realize that it is actually a when you're talking about drive, it is actually a determination to get that reinforcer. Mm -hmm. So if you miss that point, you've really missed a lot of points in training. You've become corralled into a framework that's quite dangerous because it's showing a level of ignorance that you don't really understand as much as you're preaching to people you do. Yeah. So that's a good way to explain. So using that drive to bite in the toy and that, so this replies to pet things as much, but in my capacity training working dogs, I like good prey biting dogs, right? Mm. But what I'm happy to do is if a dog doesn't have a lot of prey and the people want to teach that biting behavior, and so long as it's for sport and they understand that this is not ever going to be a dog that is going to really truly guard or whatever, then I can teach that bite as an obedience technique and I can do that with food. Mm. I can teach it as just a exactly like returning to a heel position. I can teach that the mechanics of it look like this. Is the pitcher ever going to be as good as a dog that likes to bite because that is – self-fulfilling and rewarding in itself? No, never. It's never going to be as good. But I can teach it in another way. And then there's even another way where you could go into defense. And that's where I personally am not good at working a dog in, in defense in that way. I don't like doing it. And therefore, I've never invested the time and effort to get good at it. And I've seen people who are good at it and they're magic. So there's three ways then to teach a dog to bite. If we're just talking about biting a sleeve. The dog could have that desire in himself to do it and then you're not teaching shit, you're just sort of cleaning it up. Mm. Then if there is no desire to do it, you could teach it as a learned behavior or you could push the dog to do it through defense. I really only like to do two. I can't do the third one particularly well. I'm not that good at it. So if I've expired my opportunities to do those first two and they're not working out, then the third I will refer to someone else to do. And why, I know why not. What's the problem? Exactly. I know people who do it well and, and can do it way better than me. I mean, mm. I can do it and I have done it, but I, I'm not. I'm not polished at it. And so I will just pass must on. Instead of saying, this is never going to happen. There's no way for this to happen. I'm very clear with the people, as long as you understand this dog isn't going to choose this, but you can you can put it on command and there is, there is another avenue. I'm just not good at it. Mm. I'm not set up for it, but this guy is. Go and see him. And see, I've said this in many conversations over many years. If you came to me and said, I want to do competitive agility, I've probably said this in earlier podcasts. I'll send you to someone else. Yeah. I won't even waste your time. If you said to me, Glenn, can you teach me how to 
get my dog to jump over some barrels and go through a tunnel and do some zigzagging through poles and so forth. And if I said to you, is it just for your own interest or for, you know. Just want to have fun. Like fun or a bit of tactical work or anything like that. And you said, yes, no problem. But if you're telling me you want to get 100 points, I'll send you, I'll, Rachel, who works for me, mm-hmm. I'll go, I'll tell you to go and talk to her. You know, if you want to go and learn about flyball, there's a couple of girls who used to work for me who are Australian champion flyball. They, you know, they're obsessed with flyball. I'll give you their number and tell you to go and speak to them. Ralio wouldn't even have a clue. Never mm. done it in my life. Mm. So there's no point in professing that you're the authority on everything when you're really not. Well, and no one listening would bat an eyelid at anything we just said, right? Talking about... Except people who believe that they're authority on everything. Well, when you're talking about teaching a specific behaviour for competition, there's experts everywhere and rarely, I mean, you get the odd dickhead, right? But rarely do people step too far out of their lane and think that they can do everything. Yeah, that's good. What surprises me though is then when you talk behaviour modification. So when it's teach a dog to do, people are like, oh yeah, look, I know this technique, but I'm not good at that. Talk to this guy. When you get into behaviour modification and it's teaching a dog to not do, that's when people are like, no, no, I know the way. And if this doesn't work, you're fucked Mm. and and it's not going to work. Yeah. Right. And it's the same process. It's the exact same thing. It's just being specialized in a particular area, particular dog, particular type of drive, enthusiasm, fulfillment, all those things. You get really, you're a product of your experiences. You see a particular type of dog. You get referrals from that because people have success. They refer their friend that's similar. So you, everyone, whether you want to or not, ends up reasonably specialized because you, you, you funnel work. It all ends up looking reasonably similar. And then when you get something that's outside of it, people then go, oh, no, no, this can't work. I've, the technique that I know, it doesn't work. Even though when it's teaching a dog to do a behavior, they're like, oh, no, call this guy. He's better at it than me. No problem. But it's so rare for people to go, oh, behavior mod, this is an aggression problem I can't fix. Put it down. Mm-hmm. That's what they say instead of referring on to other people. Yeah, that's amazing, isn't it, that euthanasia is a control mechanism for somebody with a massive unchecked ego. Mm. And to recite the words of an old mentor of mine, Boyd Hooper, he uses it quite readily. And again, it's probably a word that I've said in this series before at some stage, but he calls it if you were to interview a dog. Mm. I've seen him do that and I thought before I really knew you or anything. I saw a video of Boyd doing that and I thought, fuck, that is the best way to put it. I think Boyd, I've pushed him for years and many other people have too, is to actually write a book on that premises called Interviewing the Dog. Because, mm-hmm. And if you don't do it, Boyd, I will. So get you. As of when? When's the countdown on? I'll give him to the end of the year. Okay. You're on mm-hmm. the, you're you're on the on, clock. You're on the clock, mate. So, uh, And plus we're going to get you on the show one day too. And we've trademarked the name and we own the website. And, and so, <laughs> so, <laughs> so you have to pay us book. royalties. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, we haven't, but before you, while you're editing this, please do that. So okay. That yep. As soon as, um, yeah, before it goes so when to this air. this goes to air. Before it goes to things. air, it'll, we'll, we'll own all the rights to <laughs> that. And hopefully some shifty bastard doesn't do that to him because uh, it's a good premise. And Boyd is a very good thinking man in those type of aspects. And when he said that, and when you relate to that in your own terms, if somebody was to come to you and say, you have to learn my style or die, you'd say, you're fucking insane. Mm. Who are you and, and where are my options? Why have I only got these Particularly two choices? Particularly if that style is impossible for you. Correct. And there's a lot of dogs and a lot of people who are, geez, there's a lot of dogs who have been fertilised over, yeah. thing, turned into fertiliser over people's rash decisions or very, very poor decisions to do those type of things because rather than say, I'm not equipped to deal with this, I need, you need to go and see 
X, Y, or Z. Yeah. Well, the issue was as well, I think people, as I was trying to explain before, people don't, uh, you've got your dog guy, right? So mm. people will stick, I've had people contact me over multiple dogs and different issues because once you're their dog trainer, you're their dog trainer. Yeah. So, and if they've got no reason to not believe you or think that your skills are limited and, and people, I mean, you've been doing this 30 years and we're only wrapping our heads around all the the possible nuances in dog training still there's more developing and develop understanding but, but the isn't thing. that exciting no exactly isn't that wonderful but that even for the term that you can say that you've been in it for 30 years and you're still learning from people and yeah. you're still there's still as you said nuances and styles that, that are developing and modifying that you can think to yourself how wonderful is yeah. it that i can be in an industry and a training platform that is constantly being researched, constantly yep. being analysed, and there are new techniques, new understandings, new science behind it. It is just fantastic. But the average lay person or dog owner that goes to their trainer, it's very difficult for them to ascertain whether their trainer is someone that is constantly evolving and moving forward. Well, they get trainer blind. Exactly. Or where their specialization lies and how deep their knowledge is versus how thin their knowledge is. So they'll never know what they don't know. Yeah. So because they've, they've never looked outside. Exactly. So it's easy for people to then say, well, their trainer said this is an issue that can't be fixed. Mm. And everything we tried hasn't worked. And we've tried three, four, five things. None of them have worked. The trainer said it can't be fixed. It can't be fixed. And now, now I've lost hope. I have no hope in fixing my dog because the only person, the person I look at as a messiah of training can't help me mm. and has told me so, has given up on me or told me to put the dog down or whatever, I basically have to. And the average person doesn't think, you know what, I'm going to get a second opinion on this because it's not, we don't think of dog training like that. It depends on, you know, how much they love their dog and whatever. And what I find is if there's a, a possible maintenance plan, people will take that. So they've got a, a severe behavioral issue with their dog. They've had a trainer that couldn't help them, couldn't fix it for whatever reason, no matter who that is. And then if they can live with the dog and they can manage it, then they do. And the dog has this shitty life being, never gets to leave the house because it's dog aggressive or mm. whatever, right? And the reality is just if they had spoken to someone else might have seen the problem. So, and it really is not the fault of the owner. It's really the fault of that trainer who didn't compel them to say, look, I can't help you. I'm my, my playbooks run out. Everything that I know how to do is one option or mm. things that I'm ethically willing to do. They're done. My playbooks run out, but this guy, give him a call. Yep. And then you might be, first of all, saving that dog's life or at least giving it a better life. If that then can not just have to be managed so heavily. Do you know what I've had quite a lot over the years, which I really enjoy and I subscribe to a lot is former students that I've coached who've run into problems. They rang me up and said, look, I've got a private lesson. I'd love for you to take it over. Only condition is, can I come and watch and be part of the lesson? Yeah. I, and I say, absolutely. Yeah. Yep. And then sometimes I've shared the fee with them and said, well, look, you got the, you know, here's a percentage of the, of the fee. Sometimes they just say, look, just coming along mm. is all I want. I just want to come along and learn with you and study with you a little bit. Whereas even people have in the past rang me up and said, you know, can I compensate you to tag along with you and, and do some training with you? So I often tell people learning is available. It's out there. Some people may give it away. Some people may charge for it, but you have to make inroads to make that happen, whatever way it is. Yeah. And that's why I'm, I'm such an advocate for going to seminars. It may be a tapas course on what people have available. It may be 
are very abbreviated, but it's better than not having that information available to you, not being challenged on new thoughts and not having new considerations behind it. And on the flip side of that, I had somebody recently say to me, oh, you know, seminars can be very expensive. Well, so can ignorance and so can traveling. I've seen people who wouldn't go to a seminar but yet would fly over to the country, spend time in the country and then hook up with the person to do a seminar with them over there and then rave about how fantastic it was when it was the same seminar they ran in the country where you're going to. Yeah. But on their defense to it, they say, oh, well, you know, I wanted to go over there and I wanted to feel more special. I wanted to, yeah, I wanted to, you know. <laughs> it made for a really good Facebook post. I got 87 likes. <laughs> so on the flip side of this too, when you're talking about people who get fixated with, they get blinded by one trainer and they stick with that one person, then you get the opposite person, which what they call arseholes, which arseholes, are arseholes, yeah. which you get a, a person that asks so many people, they get so many contradictory pieces of advice, sometimes similar, but mostly controversial. They will then have no idea what they should be doing. They're not even sticking to any platform of training or any foundation work whatsoever. So they're so confused, they don't even know where they began and where they finished. They don't even know what's happening with the dog. Mm. So they've become so disillusioned because, and often what will happen is you'll get one person go, no, 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 don't do that. For God's sake, that person's a fool, mm. which is, look, to say that I've never done that before, would I'd, I'd have to be lying mm. because I have frowned. Well, there's some crazy shit. There is some crazy shit. And I don't, I'm not saying it in a proud fashion. I've said things before, which I have sometimes regretted, often not because the person deserved contempt, but sometimes I've, I've said things where I've thought, oh, maybe that was a bit of a harsh judgment and unprofessional on my behalf. When I've come across assholes, I just say to them, I'm not the person for you. Yeah. I just don't have, I, I'm not trying to win people's affections anymore. Yeah. I am who I am. I'm in my own degrees. I've been largely successful. I don't need people. I, I don't need to have people swanning over me and rubbing my ego up anymore because I'm not that same person who I used to be. I enjoy being praised as most people do when you're recognized and people do have nice things to say about you or to you. It is a nice feeling, but I just don't seek that constant approval all the time. Yeah. Well, the frustration there is always that most dog training is a, a system, right? So when someone comes to you and, and says, hey, oh, we've got this particular issue, working through it, and you give them a, a plan, and if they are saying it's not working before the plan has really been enacted, when they're on step one of step five, that's when they're a pain in the ass. Yeah. So it is a fine line because we're saying, yeah, you have to, don't give up, go to other people. But if you're with someone that appears competent, you have. Oh, a yeah, reason. that's the person I mean. Yeah. I'm not, I am. I'm not talking about somebody who's on a pilgrimage to yeah. So um, that seek further knowledge and improve their situation. Yeah. So um, I commend that person. Yeah. But so if you are say, well, it's a fine line with people because not giving up too early before sometimes things have to get worse before they get better. Blah blah blah. There's all these reasons that people say, nah, fuck your system doesn't work, mm. and they go to someone else and they never got a chance to actually enact the system properly and go through it. Versus someone that's like, hey, I'm sticking with you till the end, no matter what happens, right? And the best place to be is somewhere in the middle, right? See through the, give the trainer the opportunity to work through their issue. And if they have a plan and they can explain it to you and you can hit some milestones along the way, then you're doing fine. Stick with that. Most behavior, like difficult behavioral problems aren't fixed in a day. They're 
multiple sessions and really it's it can sometimes be a lifelong management issue but if your dog is able to get out and do the things you need like i'm thinking of like aggression cases is the main example in that right if you can hit some milestones and see improvement you're doing good stick Mm -hmm. with that it's when you're doing doing no good and they say i give up or it can't be done that's when it's time to go okay well it's time to look at someone else get a second opinion or a third yeah, or as many as it takes, do it. Find the person that can can work in that area. As long yep. as you're doing what they're saying, that the issue is, and it, that does do my head in. I know exactly what you mean with the assholes that you see. You say, "Yep, try this," and then you see them doing something totally different. You say, "Where the fuck did that come from?" Oh, well, I saw this guy, and he recommended this as well. And it's like that could work. That what he's saying could work. I'm not saying it won't, mm. but half of mine and half of his is not going to work. I can promise you that much. Yep. And then which one of us gets the blame? doesn't matter the person who's the the sufferer is your dog yeah yeah that's a that's an unfortunate situation that i've seen all too many times over the years and when we're talking about not following well not working with a a certain type of dog or somebody not being happy i've had people i've had clients before that have said to me no offense glenn but i've just found somebody who seems to resonate better with my dog than what you have been Mm -hmm. i have never take well i tell a lie in the beginning, when I did have an insufferable ego, <laughs> I did find that highly insulting and would often challenge that concept. Mm-hmm. However, now in later years when people have said it to me, I've said, that's good, okay, I think that's probably for the best. So rather than fighting them, rather than getting upset about it, rather than turning the situation, because sometimes I find that when they finish with that person, they'll come back yeah, and I'll say, look, I didn't mean to offend you and I'll say, oh, look, I'm not offended. I actually think it's good because if an analogy that I use again to bring up my end of tea guys, and it's something I say a lot, forgive me if I've, if you've heard me say it here before, but if you come to a GP with a bit of metal sticking out of your eye and the GP goes, I'll just get some tweezers and pull that out, you'd have to question their integrity. But if they said to you, no, mate, you're going to an optical specialist, when mm. you need an operation to get that out. And then you don't go back to that optical specialist just for a checkup. You mm. go to your GP. Yeah. So there have been times where people have said to me, can you train me to do this or can you do this? And I've either said no or we've discovered that I can't do it or I can't do it to the liking of the person. They found somebody else, but then they've come back to me for other things. Or they've come to see me as a specialist and said, I've got a problem with aggression. I've got a problem with tactical work or something like that. I've been able to help them where other people haven't been able to do. And then they've said to me, oh, would you be offended if I went back to my other trainer? And I not, not at all. Mm. Because sometimes they can't afford the fees that I'm charging. Yeah. Sometimes it's impractical for me to meet with that person or the distance that they're traveling to come to me. Or, yeah. or they've just found that it's best, whatever situation it is. So for that type of person who's going out and doing those type of things, I applaud them. Yeah. I, I think they're actually showing an incredible amount of intelligence in their decision making and they're not forgetting what the most important thing at the end of the day is, is it's not all about you. And sometimes you've got to travel some miles to do the right thing by your dog. Yeah. To use your analogy again, the worst case scenario, and this is where the two camps, the the main two camps I was talking about really divide is when, if you go to the GP and he goes, I've got something in my eye and he doesn't say, I'm going to pull that out. And he doesn't say, I'm going to refer you to a specialist. He just goes, you're going to die of an eye infection. (laughs) All right. Because that's that's what we sometimes see, right? Mm. We go, this is, I know there's a way to fix this. 
I could do it, but I'm not willing to. I sure as hell ain't going to refer you to one of those monsters that will pull that out of your eye. Maybe we'll just say some kind words to the object and see if it'll come out on its own. Yeah, exactly, mm. right? Um, <laughs> oh, it hasn't? Well, you have to go. You're going to die. Right? And that is that grinds my shit. That really drives me crazy because when people when dogs are put to sleep over people's biases, that really gets under my skin and pisses me off. And that's again, that comes back to Boyd's point before when we were talking about if you do an interview the dog, if you told the dog that, if you said to the dog, Hey, we've got a like a really nice way of doing this, and if it doesn't work, perhaps we're going to drug you off your head for the rest of your life or end your life. Mm-hmm. You know, if you sat down, if you sat down with a person and said that to them, like I'm going to transform you into a into a different person by giving you a drug, yeah, or I'm going to euthanize you, put you to sleep, you'd have to think what type of hell did I wake up on? Yeah, where if somebody said, "Hey, if you do that, I'm going to give you a, a we're going to have a tough five minutes. I'm going to give you a flick in the ear if yeah. you if you didn't do it." And then people say, "Well, that's hostile and that's horrible." People will challenge the ethical notion behind that and get all upset about it. I've never understood that. And I mean, as much as the other camp can't understand what I'm talking about now, they just said, look, I've asked that question to people before. I said to you, if somebody was to say to you, if you don't comply with this certain direction, I'll give you a a smack on the hand. Or if you don't comply with this certain direction, I'm going to euthanize you over a period of time because you don't seem to be following my direction. I said, what would you choose? Now, 99 times out of 100, people say, well, of course you'd take the smack on the wrist if, mm. if that was the chance. But then I'll get someone who'll go, well, if you're going to smack me on the hand me. so hard that skin would come off and that I'd be tied up to a wall. And I said, hang on, where are you getting this from? Yeah, yeah. Where are we going with this conversation? This is becoming outrageous or, and outlandish in what we're actually talking about. What we're talking about is the operant concept in training. If you do something that is aversive, then an aversive action happens and you learn from it and you move on. You don't sit there and start saying, well, now I'm going to get pleasure in shackling you to a wall and beating you with a cane. Yeah. That's not learning. That's torture and torment. And I understand that. I totally get that concept. And again, I don't want people to think that I'm just all about capital punishment because you get more, you attract more flies with honey than you do with vinegar. Yeah. My favorite belief is that we're all positive trainers the only difference with balance trainers is that they explore alternate methods when those methods aren't working for them. Yeah, that's right. One of the, like a specific example in dogs that I see very regularly is bracky dogs that have become dog aggressive. Yep. And in my area, and I see, you know, I see these at least two or three a month, if not more. Mm. It's almost always the case. And in these sort of dog aggression things, I'm last resort guy, right? The which annoys me, like, I love that I get referrals from the vet, but they give me the hard ones. <laughs> and I always say, you know, I can do the easy ones as well. Like, I just, I, I charge the same and I, I, I have a much nicer day. Mm-hmm. But so I'm the last resort guy, right? We've had, we, they're, they're good people who are willing to look outside the box and they've had, a, you know, someone else come over who can't fix the problem and has only given them management techniques. And then I get called to, for this final aggression issues. And I can tell you how often I see, Bracky dogs that people have been told, okay, you can't put a collar on this dog, so a dog has to wear a harness outside. The dog's friendly. It's a you know high traffic flow of dogs in my area. The dog sees another dog, he pulls into the harness, and it rewards him. He enjoys it. He finds that reinforcing. 
Then through frustration, he barks at the other dog. The owners sort of pull him back a little bit and he gets more reinforcement. They never He compound the frustration of wanting to engage with the other dog mm. with the reinforcement of being pulled on his harness, which sort of compresses his ribs, which he enjoys, and it, it tells him he's on the right track. Before too long, people have accidentally built a dog-aggressive dog from a dog that just wants to engage with another dog by reinforcing that frustration bark. And I have to try and explain to people, you've taught the dog to do this. This is not inherent to your dog. Your dog isn't actually aggressive. He doesn't have, he's not uh, like a sort of throwback to some game pit dog that is built to kill other dogs. I know people can't see my head, but I'm nodding yeah. while you're saying this. <laughs> well, it's, you would see it all the time. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. so common. Yeah. And then what keeps me awake at night, and it really does piss me off, I get really upset about it, is when people's biases then go, okay, well, that dog either then has to be isolated from other dogs. And that kills me because... The reason he was doing that was he wanted to engage with other dogs. He's frustrated because he can get there. So he's probably at the core of it, very friendly, mm. right? And the other, or he has to be put down, right? Because he's so aggressive, it's too dangerous to have around. And he may well be, have been built that way, but you built him that way. So he's just doing what you taught him to do. He thinks he's doing the right thing. And you would not believe how often in these dogs, mm. I take the harness off him put a collar on and say, look, let's accept the risk for now of causing an airway problem on this dog since we're going to put him down anyway or medicate him out of his life if we don't fix the problem. And the problem's gone. The problem's not there. Yep. And within a couple of very small like leash pressure corrections, we can show the dog, no, no, that's unacceptable. Oh, that's- you monster. Yeah, exactly. You're a horrible person. And we can show the dog that's not what we want. Mm. And the dog was never that into the behavior. He was never that committed to the behavior anyway. He's doing it because he thought that's what you wanted him to do. It's been reinforced and he thought that's the outcome you wanted. Again, it resonates so well with Esther's caption, it doesn't matter what you think and feels, it matters what the dog thinks and feels. And it's so often overlooked. Yeah. It's almost diabolical to think about how many times people are looking through that explanation simply because they don't understand it. Yeah. And they've been fixated on that concept of being indoctrinated into somebody else's theatrical ideology Yeah, that they can't see what a mess they're making of their dog with something that can be fixed so simply. And it really is very frustrating that you get referred to as I have many times as the last resort guy. Yeah. You're that hard guy that you have to send the to the school of hard knocks to fix a problem. Now, if the dog came to you in the first place, there wouldn't be any need to go into harder training styles because the dog could be conditioned properly from the get-go. That's right. And this is what is often overlooked. Now, I've been – look, I'll tell you one thing, mate, I which really when we're talking about things grinding our gears, one of the things that I, it really does annoy me is when I go and see – well-meaning but very untalented puppy trainers Mm. who are doing things with puppies that they must not and should not be doing. I'm sure I've mentioned it before. I've mentioned it many times. I just can't remember where I say it because I say it so often. But to be a puppy trainer, you need to be a very educated person in canine behavior, not just somebody who's a nice young person who's got – aspirations of doing nice things for puppies Mm. you need to be you need to have your shit squared away if you own a clinic or a training center and you're just hammering a square peg into a round hole with somebody doing that you really need your head checked yeah because i've got contempt for people who do things like that because we've talked in previous podcasts about the importance of making sure that you do have that critical window secured yeah not only that, but your conditioning processes that you're doing with that pup from there on in are so relevant to the future of that dog 
and I mean the future of that dog, keeping it out of being euthanized. And euthanasia rates due to poor training program and, and poor socialization are off the chart. Mm. And that's effectively why we have such a, a rescue and welfare issue yep. is because people are they're just giving up too easy. Yeah. And the ability to give up is well, astounding. It's, it's shocking. Awful. It's seen too much these days as acceptable. It is. Like it's okay. Divorce is acceptable. Walking away from things, taking the easy road, reaching for the pill after, uh, over doing some hard work. Yeah. Convenience is king. Yeah. And there just isn't that many people who rel- like relish in hardship and are prepared to put in the hard work for the outcome. And, and like- Let me ask you a question right here, right now. Hmm. What joy do you take in punishing dogs? None. Other exactly. Than, other than the outcome of the dog. Correct. Uh, succeeding. Good, good answer. Me too, because as I've explained to people, even though I do believe in a balanced training method of training dogs, I don't enjoy punishing dogs. No. Never have, never will. Fuck, we're, we're getting into the us and them argument, but yeah, here we are. The thing that annoys me about all that is I am – for the most part, a very positive trainer more than anything. Yeah. You're and, a lemur trainer like me, yeah. least invasive, minimally aversive. Exactly. And these days, the work I'm doing with like existential markers, I'm turning dogs around without ever laying hands on them, but, and they know they they survive in that behavior. You know, so my sister got a greyhound recently that was an ex-racing greyhound and really had no business being rehomed with a cat, but she wanted it and she's got a cat and... Yeah, she's a vet nurse. She knows what she's doing with dogs. And I went around and I've never, I've never done any greyhound work before. Well, I mean, training in this regard, right? Like tech, keeping it off of a cat. And so I, I start racking my brain and I think it's my sister. So I know she's going to follow through in everything I tell her to do. And I'm going to stay on top of her. Yep. In the most least invasive you could imagine, the worst that dog experienced was a little bit of slip lead pressure that dog now lives with the cat happily and this went from a, a i wish that i'd filmed it this went from a dog that was so locked in prey at the side of that cat it was just you couldn't break its focus it yeah. was dead dead on That's what these dogs are bred for yeah exactly and any other cat i'm telling you it's, it's killing it but this one in particular we were able to teach that cat that that dog that that cat is, is out of bounds yeah well is its survival mechanism yeah and without ever laying hands on the dog. So it does frustrate me when people then go, oh, these, you know, these are the bad guys. Like that's no, we're prepared to, if there's nothing else, if there's no other way, then we can do that. But that's not, I don't turn up and go, here we go. Like check chain on, away we go, right? Anybody who's anybody in any type of training application, animals, children, adults, whatever, if you're not doing critical analysis before you begin, Okay, if you're not doing an assessment on what you're doing, you're not worth your salt. Mm. And that's in any training program I've been in, any seminar I've been to, anybody that I've worked with that's held any type of credibility, it's the first thing they teach you is start assessing what you're looking at. And same thing, mate. I don't walk in there thinking this dog is just all about a beatdown. What I do look at is I'll say it's an investigation. It's a crime scene. You're Mm. walking in there and saying, Tell me what's going on. Describe it to me. Yeah. Show me. Can we safely repeat it? Is there any video on it? What did you do? What were the situations surrounding it? So it is a proper investigation. You're going in there forensically to look at the situation and say to them, how can we How can we get a picture of what the dog's thinking? Yeah. You know, the way I explain that to people, you say investigation, I say when I turn up to that sort of consult, I say, I'm doing a puzzle. Yep. Right. But, you know, on the box of the puzzle, we know what it looks like at the end. Mm-hmm. We don't have that. 
So all we have is all these pieces all over the floor. You've just got to look for the corners. Yeah, i just got yeah. to try and find what can I link to what. What goes together, what yep. fits together, what goes together. And yeah. that's why I say to people this. So that's why I might tell you something now and say this might be why this is happening. And then in two hours I could completely contradict myself. It's only that I've found more pieces that go together and but I understand it better. more importantly, the dog needs to know that too. Yeah. Because the dog has a fragmented way of thinking. Exactly. And what the dog's thinking is what I'm doing is normal yeah. and it's rewardable and it's okay because it's, as I say to people, it's behaviour. Yeah. It's, the dog doesn't think, today I'm, I'm going to get up and I'm going to do some bad behaviour because I just feel like it. Yeah, what no the dog, such thing as bad behaviour. Not to a dog. Yeah. To a human, the the concept of good and bad behavior is a human concept, yeah. not an animal concept. Yeah. To them, it's just behavior. It's just part of existence. Yeah. I think that it's quite cold and most dog trainers understand this. Well, I hope that most do, but to explain to just the average pet dog owner, the idea that your dog pleases himself. So why does a dog do what? anything? And it's to better his own situation and that's it. Yeah. And no, no, he loves me and he thinks, no, he just betters his own situation. And so- Sometimes by cuddling to you and displaying affection and all that, his situation gets better, so that's why he does it. I, I really wish I could find this footage, mate, because I've searched the internet. So if anybody is listening and they have this footage, I have seen it where I'm sure somebody showed me at a seminar when they came out here where there's a, a dog that prefers the company of a robot dispensing treats to them over its human companions. Yeah, right. Yeah. Because they basically worked out, you're the one that's feeding me, not these assholes. Yeah, and- like it doesn't just have to be, I mean, that's a great example of food, but it doesn't have to be food. It can be whatever it is that dog, as we've discussed many times, rewards are relevant to the subject only. Whatever it is that the dog likes. if At that time. Yeah. If it's mm. coming, then the dog's situation is getting better. He's improving his own situation and he's going to stick with it. And, that, and that's often the first thing that we ask a lot of a lot of students. Do you know what a primary reinforcer is? Yeah, right. Yeah. Whatever the dog wants at that time. Yeah. That's what also sort of, Here's what grinds my gears is when the dog is just chasing those reinforcers and we've never said, no, no, that's not available as a reinforcer. You can't have that. Mm. And here's the punishment that outweighs that reinforcer so you don't want to go after it. And the dog goes, oh, okay, no problem. Like I'll better my situation. I won't put myself in that position again. And then fixed, right? And it, that's oversimplifying. It's never just fixed. Yeah, but there's work. Um, there's elbow grease that's got to go into that situation. Yeah, but so long as your dog is actually a stable dog and this is where this is where you then get people just they just write the dog off as mental and that exists right there's no arguing that exists there are unstable dogs that really have no business being alive and they unfortunately sometimes euthanasia is the answer Mm. but rarely right rarely it's usually just a case of the dog is just like okay here's your advantage i'll show you how to find your advantage the dog goes okay i'm happy with that I'll, i'll do that yeah when you've got a dog that's resembling somebody like charles manson or something like that that's usually when i say to them Time to go. There's time to go. There's not much that you can do with this dog that will allow it to safely walk amongst public yeah. or enjoy a quality of life. I can't, you know, remember, I can't remember if we've talked about it here before, but like I've only done that a couple of times and I would yeah, never do it. Yeah, it's very, very rare. Yeah, and I usually tell people this is how I feel, but I'm going to bring in a friend. And I, I always get someone else to – and it's someone I know. A second opinion. Yeah. yeah. But, I mean, they're very welcome in both cases to go and – find their own person to give them advice. Yeah. But I also want advice from someone that I know knows what they're looking at. See, I'm the same way about medicating as well. I mean, yeah. I can't subscribe medication because I'm not a vet, but 
even in the situation where people are talking about medication, I think medication is reached for t- far too readily and I question mm-hmm. some of the ethics behind that. Yeah. So I know that the, it's definitely needed. And I'm, again, I'm not one of those people who just undermines science. I know there are clients of mine who have gone off and medicated their dogs and it's worked for the better. Yeah. I've seen the dog, I've seen the quality of lifestyle it's having and I concur that that was the right decision to make. When we've talked about the list of opportunities for that dog at the time and they've said to me, training has not worked, I have done this and I have done that and I can see that they've done the hard yards and they still love the dog and there is an option for behaviour modification medication, not a problem. Yeah. But when it's just the dog walks into the clinic and they're already pulling off a script paper to yeah. give her the medication, that type of thing, I question it. Yeah, I think that for me personally, again, acknowledging that I can't give meds anyway, but so long as the diet's in check and the fulfillment is in check. Yeah, all of it. That, all the catalysts are in place yeah, and then yet there's still a still – There's a problem. Yep. Then we can start discussing, okay, well, this is beyond anything I know, beyond anything anyone I know know. We've looked around, okay, now let's go to meds because then certainly that there must be something wrong. But if you haven't addressed all the, the things that you can beforehand, then – it's unethical, I think, to just go straight to meds. In some situations, it has to be asked, are you just creating a customer for life? Yeah. Or are you really involved in making sure that you have a... Certainly, I think there's an aspect of creating a customer for life, but you know, sometimes those meds, they aren't that expensive. And so like I remember and it was all over Facebook and was being shared everywhere about a particular vet doing that. And it, was, it wasn't that expensive. So it wasn't like it was creating customer. It was an ethics thing. It was just, this is, I'm totally unprepared to do anything other than this. Mm. And so you get, here's the meds. This is what you get. Well, that's that, what I'm saying. There's, I do know people who have gone into consults, been either pressured or have elected to go into certain places where they walked in there. And I've said, so tell me the process. How long was the discussion for? And they said, oh, they were pretty much writing the script for me before mm. As I walked in. Um, before I even sat down, they were pretty much subscribing a medication for me and didn't yeah. really want to see the dog or know much about it. They just said, you need to be on this. If you were to look through those lenses, every dog we own would be eligible, right? So my dog, Valerie, she runs around, chases dust, and she has, but she loves it. She has a wonderful time. And, and, and who's she hurting? No one. And I can recall her through any of it. She does obedience through any of it, but that's she's fulfilled doing that. She and loves in certain running homes, around. Randy would be a nightmare for oh, people. Totally. And in some households, people will be saying, oh, this dog needs to be medicated. Yeah. Because he is busy all the time. Yeah. But and he doesn't cause me any issues. No, exactly. And you know you've got him for that purpose. And Correct. That's I think there's a big problem in that as well and people getting the wrong dog. Mm-hmm. Like could you imagine, say, Randy or Remy. So Remy and Val get along super well. He will kill her for a ball. Yep. She knows not to challenge him for it. He couldn't see her. He'll go through her to get a ball or, what you know, a toy of <laughs> any sort of kind. He loves her and he she's actually very dominant over him. Yep. But he can't he can't perceive any of that. Once he kicks into drive and sees the thing he wants, nothing can well, get in his way. drive blocks pain and fear. Exactly. So anything that was relevant before, there are no yep. rules once you're engaged in that high state of arousal. Yeah, nothing can get in his way. Hmm. So imagine... I'm a person who's got a dog like this and I don't know what I'm doing and I call any trainer or veterinary behaviourist and I say, look, I've got this dog. He's sweet and he's great. Everything's fine. But when a ball comes out, he will kill anyone that has the ball to get it. He will go through any barrier. He will do anything that it takes to get that ball. They're like anything. He will jump off a cliff. He will bite another dog in half. He will do anything it takes to get his desired toy. 
that's they're like it's a monster it's a psychopath mm-hmm. how, how could you live with that and i'm like he's the best dog ever i love him he's the best yeah because i manage it i only use a ball as a reward i've taught him that he can only have the ball as true here's his marker for the ball and it's a it's a reward toy and he's totally fine without the rest of the time it just means that i have to be careful where i pull that thing out and that same talk when that, that person calls a veteran behavior and say oh my god that's terrible we have to drug that dog and, and just get him to the point where he can't even look at the ball because he's so doped out of his mind then you call someone else who has working dogs are like I will buy that dog, right? How much do you want for him? Because, <laughs> yeah. because I've got some work that he needs to do, yep. right? So it's just horses for courses. And I think a lot of the time that gets glossed over. When people are medicating dogs, it's because they cannot fulfill that dog. It's the wrong dog for them to have. You just said it perfectly there. And that was an interjection I was just going to have is that a lot of times people get totally inappropriate dogs for yeah. their needs. They'll go and get a blue heel or a Kelpie and want to put it in a small backyard and then wonder why it barks and runs around in circles spinning in its own dust all yeah. day. And why does it chase the kids around trying to round them up? Exactly. In those situations, the better we can be as educators overall, all of us in those sort of situations, like it doesn't matter if it's a family, a friend, a loved one, a colleague, whatever. If you can see that they make an ill-informed choice in the breed of dog that they're getting, then do something about it. Mm. You know, it really is your duty of care as an industry professional to say, I think that is a really bad choice. Here are the reasons why. Yeah. You know, not I think, I know that's a really bad choice. I actually, I'm predicting problems for you. Now, that's not always going to be the case. Sometimes you'll have a prediction and it won't come true. That has been sometimes the case in situations like i had a friend that wanted to get a certain breed of dog. I tried to talk them out of it. They got the dog anyway, and they couldn't be happier. Mm. And they're lucky because I know other people who in the exact same situation who have gone off and got that breed, and then they've come back to me and said, oh, this this is a nightmare. And I almost want to say, I told you so. Yeah. But I don't want to be that smug ass when people are coming to you at that point and saying, how can I fix this problem? Mm. This is where I think – rescue plays an awesome part and when people want a really specific dog and when people want that it's usually chilled out couch potato when they want specific the average person right Mm. they're not like us that want lunatics and you don't know when you get a puppy how it's going to turn out and there's so many different key events throughout that dog's life that will make it into who it is there's genetics there's there's nature and nurture and both in there if you get an adult dog and you go for a rescue you can just choose the one you want. Yep. You can take them home. But the issue we come into there, again, we're off topic, but is most rescues give you like a two-week sort of cooling off period or whatever, but no one uses it. Everyone gets a dog and like as they're going home, that's like, I love you, Fido. You're my dog forever. This is it. <laughs> Whereas I, I try and tell people so often, I say, don't get attached to the dog. Check out what he's like. Because like if you're looking at working prospects from rescues, I'm sure you've done that in the past as well. Is Heaps. A lot of dogs and a lot of industry people that I know who are working in those fields um, go to rescue first. Yeah, exactly. they haven't got time to wait for a puppy. No, that's right. And they, you, they want the package. They want that crazy dog that's doing backflips over a tennis ball or something yeah. like that. And But you can, whatever your desire from the dog is, you can usually say to rescue, as long as they're, they're good rescue people and they know that they live in the real world, mm. you can say, hey, this is what I'm after and take the dog and for a couple of days you go, nah, next and put one in, take him out. And if like you're looking after the dog in the meantime, but you say, I'm looking for something very specific. Now for us, that's usually, I want the craziest one you have, which is usually pretty easy to find. Mm. But you say, no, I'm after a couch potato. I want a dog with basically no drive that just wants to hang around with the family. Mm. And I want to try and find, why is he here? That something's had to go on wrong. This dog's in rescue for a reason. I want to try and figure that out. Is it, a, is it a problem we can fix or manage or whatever in the environment he's going into? Perfect. Okay, this is the one. 
But actually, I can't wait to do our session with Dallas because mm, I really want to. Yeah. yeah, I really. In case you didn't know, um, Berkowitz is that her last name? I think so. Yeah, I think that's. Sorry, Dallas, if I've just mispronunciated your surname, but uh, Dallas, who's in Canberra, who's been in heavily involved in rescue for a lot of years, we're going to do a roadshow at some stage. Mm. We're going to go down to Canberra and, and talk to Dallas. Do some Canberra stuff. Do some Canberra stuff. So we're going to hang out with the Canberrians and talk about rescue. So it, hopefully that'll be a good podcast because I'm intrigued. I'd love to know some more facts and figures because I'm not a rescue person. I've done very small amounts of rescue. I'm sure you've helped in rescue with certain things. Yeah. But um, for people, some people it's been a very disciplined lifestyle where they've given up a lot of their personal time yeah only to be held down by red tape and bureaucratic nonsense yeah well and there's so much of that in rescue Mm. but as i was saying so like that's where i find myself going to quite a lot for people who want a specific dog when you can just try before you buy essentially and and people forget that they bring the dog home and they put a photo of it in the car on Facebook. And it's like, this is my new dog. And then people say, like, if it doesn't work out, then they go, oh, where's that dog? Yeah. Oh, you're such an ass. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. So the, the truth is get the one that fits. Don't mm-hmm. just get anyone. Don't get the one that looks good. It's exactly like choosing a puppy when you're getting one from a breeder. Get the one that's going to fit your lifestyle as much as you can You can control then. But there's lots of things you can't control. Yeah. Whereas if you get one from the rescue, the the only problem with the caveat I say to people then is he's there for a reason. You might not know for yeah, sure. Right? Yeah. So that's why, that's where I I've come in many times for people to try and expose that reason. We go, oh, okay, it's because- Be sensible. Yeah, well, we find, okay, this is the problem with the dog. He pulls insanely on the lead or he's got severe separation anxiety or, you know, whatever it is. Mm. And maybe that's not a problem. But maybe for them it's not a problem or maybe it's a a problem that we can work on. Anyway, we get to try it out. And if it's like, okay, this dog's never going to work out, we go back to the rescue and we say, hey, this one's not going to try. Can we try another one, right? And I've had good experiences doing that. I've also been told- I've been painted as a psychopath for doing that by a particular rescue, but most of the time they're very accommodating in that in that space. Mm. Yeah, look, again, it comes down to personalities behind the helm, doesn't it? Yeah, of course. You know, the, the captain of the ship is not always the same character. Well, the idea then was that all dogs are good dogs and just take this one. And I was like, well, mm. no, that's not the case. I'm sorry. Yeah. Oh, look, I've seen some amazing rescue facilities and I've seen some that are, it's basically the captain on the Titanic. Yeah. It's just it's an absolute disaster and again it's a bureaucrat running a, an organization where they're making very very ill-informed decisions based on trying to i don't know <laughs> <laughs> i don't know what i'm trying to say well don't say it well, yeah. there's a whole nother there literally is a, an episode in rescue and we want to talk about that we've gone yeah, so yeah. far off topic we've just been rambling but i think it's good in that we really are hitting on that failure in training and how to avoid it in as many spaces as possible so you know, choosing the right trainer, choosing the right choosing the right dog, choosing the right trainer, choosing yep. the right way to train. And if it's not working out and you've given it a good shot and it's really not working out, go to someone else. And there's a million things you can do before you A, give up on the dog or B, put it down. Or C, which can be just as bad as living this terrible life of management where the dog is either, you know, trapped in a kennel and never allowed out because he's too dangerous to do so. He's a, you know, dangerous dog now or whatever or just medicated out of his brain and he's basically a, a potato. Mm-hmm. Just a, a small caveat on what we were saying, that in a situation where somebody like Pat or myself do actually come to a lesson and say to somebody that euthanasia is a strong option, in those sort of situations, 
you have to consider that we've never arrived at that point lightly. No. We've never just sort of sat back and thought, uh, I couldn't be bothered doing this, let's just snuff the dog out. Yeah. We've looked at it, and again, this is where you were saying that you bring a friend along to your appointments. I think that's actually a great idea because it gives you two people that can have a yeah analytical uh, look at it and then say, yeah, yeah, this is not good. Yeah. There's only one circumstance where, for me, it's the first step, and that's like predatory aggression on a kid yeah that i will not accept that in any way shape or form from a dog and you know unless the dog can be swapped into a working role where it's got nothing to do with contact in children if that were possible i don't know where that's possible Hmm. so for me in the early days i've i used to rescue a lot of shepherds and roddies that we would send into working roles that weren't suitable to be in a family home yeah so i used to just go around and and sometimes people just say sometimes i have to buy them something people would say just come and get the dog it's going to bite my kid. So going to bite my kid and predatory aggression against the kid, I think there's a line somewhere in the... In yeah, but these the dogs end. were... It was a it was a train wreck waiting yeah, to right. happen. So in those sort of situations, we used to just go around and pick them up. And the role of the dog was it would never be around children. Yeah. I mean, even the contract of sale was that the dog was never to be around children. Mm. Yeah. It doesn't sit well, especially when someone's pet has turned that way. I've actually never had it in a working breed, like a dog that that would... That was never on the cards. But, yeah, for me, that's the end because there's no way to go from there. If it's prey and you really want that that badly and then it's just not worth the risk. No, it's, um, it's going to happen. It's just a matter of when. Yeah. No, and, you know, I love dogs and, we, you know, we both spend our whole lives dealing with them, but no mm. no dog is worth a kid's life. That's, that's Or looking at your child with scars all over it. Yeah, exactly. And knowing that you could have done something about that yeah. but didn't. Yeah. Defensive and, like – there's lots of reasons why I would say, oh, okay, I can see what's happened here and this is not something that's likely to happen again. Or, uh, you know, kids can be assholes and they idiot parents let their dog they push and push and push so the dog feels like it has no choice. That's a different scenario. Even though I still am I'm really against that, that's a different scenario. It's when it's a predatory aggression that that's a whole other kettle of fish. And did, that you, is- did you happen to see that um, footage? It, w- it wasn't uh, a video. It was just a, uh, a caption of stills where a uh, young child was – drinking its bottle with a dog and then one day the parent came in and yeah. scalped half the side of her head. Yeah. I got a a lot of people slammed that lady. A lot of people supported her. My take on it is that I don't think it's a, a good or a sound thing to leave toddlers with dogs. You just don't know. Yeah. And then the dog died for that. So yeah. you don't know if the kid did something and then, you know, you'll have people say, well, it doesn't matter if the kid did something. The fact that the dog bit it like that means that the dog has to be destroyed. I'm not a parent and I'll, I'll, I'll state that up front, but I've seen people defend actions that their kids have, which I find highly questionable because mm. it's their offspring and they'll allow it to happen. Now, I'm not saying that that's right or wrong. I'm just saying that I've seen situations where I've been to consults where it's a hundred percent the child at fault, 100%. And it's also at fault the parents for stupidity and ignorance that they're allowing this behaviour to happen unchecked. That's correct because it's never the child's fault. Well, a child is doing behaviour like a puppy is doing behaviour. Kids are idiots and they like – They are idiots. We we accept that they don't have – they don't have responsibility till they're 18, so you can't then blame them for anything before then. It's yep. it's 100% the parent's fault for allowing it to happen. Yep. And and in that particular scenario, I don't know those people. I know the story you're talking about. and I don't know her either and I don't know what happened. I just my, – my only advice to people in that same sort of situation, if you're telling me that you can trust your dog 100%, I'm telling you that you need to 
really rethink those statistics. Yeah, and really that goes back to what we're saying, that a dog finds his advantage. Mm. And if the kid has, it could be anything, you know, like. The dogs punish each other like that on a regular basis. Yeah. You and, know, and that is a normal practice for a dog to, and people might question me on that and say, do you think that was normal? Well, I mean, I've seen my Frenchies punish each other over that, over certain things. I've seen my shepherds punish each other, things like that. I've seen Roddy's punishing each other. Yeah. I've seen dogs of mixed breeds, same sex, different sex, different breeds, different ages, all over life where there'll be certain thing that they'll, one dog will challenge another dog, one dog will push a dog's pain threshold. You know, a bite will take place where they grab and thrash. And you say, if it was a child, if it was something with delicate skin, it would easily fly it like that. Yeah. So in those sort of situations, all I'm saying is this is not to, we were talking about failure in training, that's failure in parenting sometimes. Yeah, yeah. Because you're failing to recognize some of the hallmark signals that your dog is giving at that point in time. You need to pay attention. Well, I mean, that's exactly it. People fail to recognize that because they just don't know. They they really don't know what they're looking at. And And parents aren't telling their kids no enough as well. Yeah. They're not raising their child to understand what limits are. Yeah. Well, it's a training opportunity for everyone. It is. You find find that going down where the dog's uncomfortable and the kid's making it so. First of all, of course, you have to stop it. But then you use an opportunity to, to show the kid, hey, this is what you're doing. And this is, you know, this is the path. This is where it goes. So this is an appropriate treatment of the dog. And this is how you are allowed to interact with the dog. And this is how how you're not. And I mean, we've talked about before, like it's something that I have to be so careful of. Like my dogs are 100% safe around kids so long as nothing crazy happens. And so long as I'm there, nothing crazy will happen. Hmm. It's just when I would never leave them just to hang out unsupervised, totally totally unsupervised. I just wouldn't do until, you know, the kid's old enough at least five to understand like, okay, there's some cause and effect to my actions. Cause the younger than that, they don't know shit. They mm-hmm. just do stupid things and they don't, they don't understand it. I'd even question five. No, but I mean, at least five, you could leave them in the room. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. I, I wouldn't be sleeping in the bed, sharing a bottle, but at least so that you can say, Hey, this is what will happen because kids, they just don't link, they just don't link that shit up. In regards to that lady with the dog, what I, what I do want to, say is that I'm really sorry that happened to a kid. Oh, it's terrific. You know, it is. And it's terrible because that mum will be kicking herself for her Forever. life. Forever. Every time she looks at the scars on that kid, she'll be kicking herself. I do think it's brave that she showed the pictures. Yeah, I do yeah, think yeah. that. Well, it's good that she did because then people understand. It creates that's awareness. why she did it. That's why she did it. I it read the, the caption she yeah, said. It creates so awareness. Know. So um, this wasn't to slam her. This is not a, a thing about her. It's just a thing in general, which I'm just saying to people, you just need to be more thoughtful about Mm. how you go about this because you've got to pick up on these things. You know, there's an old saying, dog bites, a cat scratches and a horse kicks. And if you keep that in mind through everything else, you'll you'll be safe. That's what they do. Dog bites, a cat scratches, a horse kicks. Yeah, I think that's sound advice. Presume that's going to happen and take steps to make sure that it doesn't happen to you and you're going to be okay. Yep. Especially with kids. Especially with kids. So... We've gone around, we've talked about a lot of different things and our intent was to talk about failure yeah, this migrated training. into... Just like a rant. A, once you get us angry, or well, not angry, just once you get us waffling. It's, pa- it's, not, it's not anger, it's passion. Yeah, yeah, it's, definitely. It's, it's passion in things that we've seen over a collective amount of years and things that we've consulted on yeah. with our clients and we've seen many instances of these type of things. Of course, they're going to create passion in you. Something I did want to hit on, just a personal story. I've only ever had it one time where a client put a dog down while we were working with the dog. So between sessions, and they were like spaced out sessions, 
he contacted me and said it got too much and I, I returned the dog to the rescue who agreed that it was the dog should be euthanized. That certainly for me, I think is a failure in training, not of the dog because we're on a path, but of the person. And it was probably a failure in showing where we were, where we were going with it all. And certainly in that dog, like it was a severe dog aggression case, but it could have been fixed. I could have fixed it. I left it showing the owner and I was happy that they were going incrementally. And what I failed to, to read was how tough the owner was doing it. And I thought we were okay because we'll, we'll make yeah, steps. Yeah, that's a good observation. Yeah, we're making steps going forward. And the dog, who knows, it, it, we can only play hypotheticals now, but I was confident that we were, we were hitting milestones and the dog was improving. But even a, a 50% improvement was still a nightmare with this dog. But we're going forward. And it got too much for the owner and he did end up re- returning the dog to the rescue who then euthanized it. Mm. Um, so that for me, I think is worth talking about in his failure as well. And that you got to read the client as much as the dog. And that's where Bertie yeah. comes in. You know, that's, that's part of big part of her workshop. And what we spoke about with her is like the dog part is often easy. You don't, um, you just don't understand how fragile people can be sometimes, especially yeah. if you're a certain type of character. Yeah. There's a business saying that I heard many, many years ago, which I relate to common life, which is one person's trash is another person's treasure. Mm-hmm. So the way you you view something is completely viewed differently by a different person. Yeah. So you might look at something and saying, I can handle this all day long, whereas another person could look at it and say, I would crumble under that. Mm. That would be an incredibly challenging and a quite a, a trial if I was to be involved in that situation. Yeah. So two people looking at it from two different ways that are, aren't often considering it from the other person's point of view. Yeah. In that particular circumstance with me, the thing that pisses me off about that was the failure on my part was there's a quicker way. It just was a, it was not the least invasive, minimally aversive. There was a quicker way. We could have put a prong collar on that dog and we could have gotten quicker results, but we were going for very softly, softly because I thought that's what the client wanted. And it is the best way when when done correctly. If you've got infinite time, and which I, I was under the impression that we did, but we could have done it in a much shorter time frame and maybe got results that would have given him hope that it would get to where we wanted to go quicker and then, you know, he might have stuck with the dog longer. So that is, I think, that's the balancing point. It can be tricky as a trainer to try and surf that, that rim of, like, doing it the mm. best way. Especially in this day and age where people – conditioned to be so judgmental yeah that you know any suggestion like that you'd be considered a monster yeah so that can be really difficult and that's a failure point in training is is making sure that you do it the best way but also efficiently enough that it gets seen through to the end because it's no point like exactly like i did having this great plan that i'm confident was going to work over a six-month period and be a totally fixed scorn problem that we didn't have to worry about in the future. Mm. Whereas the the two week option might've in that case been the way to go. Yep. Uh, and I know how to do that and I'm comfortable with doing that. I just picked it wrong. I usually try and read the owner and say, okay, what are you more likely to follow through with? And what are you more likely to do? And we go with that. Cause you know, they've got lots of tools up my, my sleeve to, to do these sorts of things, but I got it wrong. So that for me is a big failure in training. That That's my fault. Mm. I, I accept that as my own. So that's, that's really all the failure in training I can think of. Oh, you know, the working dog part that we spoke about once that, you know, sometimes dogs are getting washed out by one person and turning out by another. Um, can you elaborate on that when we were talking about? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there was a situation a while ago, and this is something that I can personally relate to. There was a dog that wouldn't bite a rag, wouldn't bite a sleeve, wouldn't bite a rag, wouldn't bite a toy, wouldn't chase a ball. 
And everybody said to me, this dog's a piece of shit. Mm -hmm. That's the way they described it. And it's, you know, it's not that the dog itself is a piece of shit. It's just that it's a it's probably a terrible phrase, mm. but it was a phrase used in conjunction with its ability to work. Mm -hmm. So when I looked at it and I said to the owner, how long have you got? And he goes, oh, look, I'm keeping the dog no matter what. And he said, I'd like to do this just for fun. And I said, okay, can I experiment? And he said, go for your life, do whatever you want. He said, I just want to enjoy the dog and I, I want to see if there's any hope at all before I'm prepared to give up on doing this. So what we did was, yeah, the dog didn't chase jute. It didn't chase balls. It wasn't interested in tugs or anything like that. But what we did was we put a bit of meat on a bit of string and flung that around the air. Now, the dog went crazy when we did this. Yeah, right. It changed the perspective of the dog. And suddenly where the dog showed no interest in anything, it started to chase after it. Mm -hmm. Now, obviously, it's food. Its desire was different than yep. going around with just a, a wobbly bit of chamois or something like that on the end of the lead. But the dog really woke up when we started doing this. Now, then what we started to do was we started to do a bit of a transfer where we'd have a bit of chamois. And if the dog showed any interest, like it didn't have to chase it, it just had to look at it, we'd immediately start getting the, the meat out on the string. So what the dog started to understand was if I show interest in the chamois and go after it, then I can have the meat. Yeah. Okay. So we started to show the dog where its advantage lied simply by transferring from one to the other. Yeah. So three months down the track, we had the dog biting a tug toy. Mm -hmm. And I mean biting and hanging onto the tug toy and shaking and pulling. And everyone looked at it and said, how'd you do that? Well, I just went outside the square. I did things that were unconventional to what other people were prepared to do. And that I think in training is where you're breaking new frontiers and things mm -hmm. is not looking at being conventional just because somebody said that's the way to do it. Yeah. You've got to wake up and look at possibility. If you're ever going to be somebody in the training world, you've got to, you've got to think about what you're actually doing and not just walk the path that somebody carved before you. Mm. Sometimes you've got to look at carving your own path in what you're doing. There was a good saying about that. I don't know who quoted it, but it's a it's a quote that I do enjoy because those sort of things helped give me credibility as a trainer. Those are the sort of things that made people say to me, how did you do that? People that were my peers were asking me that question. How did you do that? How did you make that dog bite the sleeve? Well, the good thing was is I had time. I had time and I had imagination. I wasn't looking at it with tired eyes and just thinking, to steal that phrase is dogs just shit. Mm. You know, the dog wasn't shit. The dog just needed a different type of motivation. Yeah. So the dog was never going to be the competitive dog that the owner wanted, but he was sticking by the dog. And yeah. I, I'm, I'm telling you now, the owner was ecstatic that we got the dog onto a sleeve. Yeah. So we got the dog onto a sleeve. Look, the dog would come off fairly easy, but he could not believe that six months prior to that, people were telling you'll never, ever, ever, get this dog on a sleeve, Yeah, six months into the future, I got the dog on a sleeve. Yeah. Well, you know, that's a perfect story because it closes the loop on everything we've spoken about here. We go back to the start. We say people changing out dogs. And, mm. and the reality is if that's your dog and you just want to have some fun and do some training, Correct. perfect. No worries. That's the way to do it. And there's no need to get another dog. And, and, and that journey and is happily probably ever after. Yeah, and that journey is probably very fulfilling. The whole process of going through that for you, for the him, and then eventually for the Such dog. Such a good learning experience. Everyone has a good time. Sure, if you're going to work the streets or if you want to be world champion, whatever it is, with a dog that, that's got a bite because it, 
it lives to buy it. It's not the right dog. You move him on. Yeah. But in that circumstance, it's the perfect thing to do. It's a big win for everyone. And the failure would be then moving that dog on and getting a new dog and becoming world champion. You're still an asshole for doing that when that wasn't your desire you, and what happens to the other dog that just gets put on the back burner, right? Yeah. But in this case, he got to come out. It's a perfect example of doing correctly what we spoke about at the start. See that? We tie it all up. Even though we're just randomly and just talking scoffing shit. at people. Yeah, we're just talking <laughs> shit and trying not to get too angry for an hour. <laughs> yep. We've tied it all back together. Yeah, we've arrived at a perfect conclusion. Perfect. Mm. So we won't say any more so we don't digress too much further. So that's it for another episode of The Canine Paradigm. If you like what you're hearing, the ranting and raving that we always come back to some sort of point. To two mad geniuses talking shit about going around anything. in circles, but we do the circle, complete it. <laughs> uh, if you like what you're hearing, jump on whatever uh, subscription service you download us through, give us a rating. Doing that helps us get in touch with people we can't just harass and say, hey, listen to our, our ranting podcast. And if you want to get in contact with us, please do so via Facebook, The Canine Paradigm. You can send us a, a private message, we'll both see, or you can write publicly and do whatever you want there, post videos, post photos. Hey, don't forget doing. too, if you are on iTunes, I know it's a real pain in the bum, but if you wouldn't mind writing us a review, it definitely will help us. It pushes the paradigm up. It gives us better ratings. It makes iTunes look at us a little bit more Yeah, as I say, thoroughly. it just helps that people we don't know. Yeah, it does. It, it really does make a difference. So if you could spend two minutes, like I said, I sometimes these things are a pain in the ass to do to log in and go through the process, but it won't take more than two minutes. And if you could do it, it's highly appreciated and it reinforces that we're on the right track and that people do enjoy the show. So pretty pleased with the cherry on top. That's it from us. Ciao.